the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. I am your host as always, Cooper Cherry. We are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I get started with today's guest, just want to mention that I do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you're enjoying the show, consider throwing me a buck a month to help uh, defray some of the cost. But today's guest is Taylor Atkins. Uh, you may recall him from the Super Quartario Brothers series where we are doing a deep dive into Felix Quartari's the machinic unconscious, but today Taylor and I will be discussing essentially what would uh, effectively be the preface and just sort of setting the table for a discussion or a series of episodes on Francois Laruelle's philosophy and non-philosophy, which Taylor himself actually translated, and the edition is the univocal um, uh, binding, which is absolutely, it's, it's a gorgeous binding, definitely recommend taking a look at that and consider purchasing that actual physical book uh, just because it's it's so nice. So here is Taylor and I um, as we discuss La Ruelle. At least give a quick and dirty reference non, in terms of like what Euclidean, even oh, like yeah. what Euclidean geometry is to even, you know. Sure, I mean, I could set the table for. Honestly, I, w- I mean, I wouldn't be able to talk about like, yeah, there are, there right. are. Like anything, it's its own fractal ontology that you can continue to, go on and on it's gonna like branch and branch and branch well before we record i'm not sure if you looked into i guess the important thing and i'll just hit this for you i I could elaborate more when we record is is that what happened was lobachevsky and riemann each with their own concerns found that one of euclid's postulates which euclid has this postulate where you can define it more mathematically than this, but it's but in a simpler in a simple kind of layman's terms, that suppose you have straight lines and they um, there's no point that if they extend infinitely, there is no one point where any straight line any point given infinite lines, there's only going to be one line going through the point. That's Euclid. So with with Lobachevsky and Riemann, and this is what allows for. Einstein to do general relativity is if we, that's only kind of if we assume that the universe is kind of flat, yeah, like infinitely. Right. But if the universe is curved, if there's a curvature of the universe, and of course Einstein develops ideas about how this affects temporality, yeah. then, and Riemann really develops this more in terms of the points, but Lobachevsky makes this possible too, that for Riemann, that's not true. That any one point could potentially have more than one line parallel lines sorry that it with the given infinite space given the 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 curvature that there could be more than one line okay. converging in, in a point gotcha. um for standard euclid that's impossible right that's impossible or at least for the pot so so what riemann proved with his uh, with his kind of framework of geometry with thinking 
this topological curvature that lines could go through one point. And what's interesting is that it's not really until we have these scientific advances in the 19th century that, he, that we even need to consider right. the insufficiency yeah. of Euclid's postulate. Right. So it holds for 2,000 years, and, and it didn't really prevent scientific advancements. But with Riemann, and this is, this is what makes Einstein possible, this is kind of how science works, right? It, unlike art or literature, which is very cyclical, and philosophy too in many ways, science you know, generally builds off Like in of, a linear... Maybe not linear. Sarah would have a problem with that, but it, but it generally, you know, you build, you build off of proofs and, 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 and certain things, certain avenues become unlocked and possible with, and so what Laura will sees in that is that with philosophy, philosophy has had, he'll call it different things. He'll call it like, um, he'll call like the Heraclitian or Pomeranian conception of being this, where it's basically that for anyone you know, concept or term or whatever, there's like one and only one philosophical decision that is appropriate to it. And for him, given, and this is, this is the consequence of the, of what he calls the, the chaos and Cora. Once we, once we like show that they're all transcendentally equivalent in terms of their truth value for the real, to, to kind of speak loosely, then an infinity of decisions can like, can be appropriate for, you know, for a concept or term or whatever. And they can all share in the same space in a, in a way that's, that, that can't, that, that cancels out their antagonism because, you, you know, I, I always like to point it to someone like Hegel who looks at Schelling and Fichte and like kind of plays them off each other and uses that alpha bong to springboard himself up as yeah. as the correct one and for laura well that that implies a kind of violence a kind of a kind of war or he'll use a he'll use religious terms he'll say it'll be like a schism like hegel creates the schism in german idealism and, so, and breaks off from the church of Schelling yeah. and fichte and says i'm the true path and for laura well it's really about cultivating i mean i i coined the term speculative heresy, but I was obviously thinking of Laurel because Laurel will talk about um, heresy that philosophy has never truly known heresy for its own sake, which would not reconstitute a, a new, which would not reconstitute a schism that would claim to, to have some sort of more direct access to the real than any previous decision. So anyway, yeah, the non-Euclidean thing. So yeah, for him, once we get to the point where Mallorca, John, his name used to be John Mularkey, which is just funny. <laughs> uh, but he, he changed it to, I guess it's, it's kind of Irish Gaelic, uh, to John Mallorca. I can't even spell it. It's, uh, I always misspell it. Um, anyway, he, he has a book called All Thoughts Are Equal, which I find to be great for beginners. I find it to be somewhat, I think it really is more for beginners, but it's, but it's well-written. It's very good. It's, it's hard to write about Laurel. And that's, that's a kind of good general framework to, to understand it, that I would say all decisions are equal. I think that's more rigorously Laurelian in this framework. And it would be a question of defining equality. Of course, it's equal in terms of the real, the one, because the one is not Convertible, reversible with any decision. What's his conception of the one is? Of Laurel? Conception yeah. of the one? Are we recording yet? I don't know. I, um, yeah, I, I rolled. I started okay. rolling. Good. Once we started uh, to get into the meat. So, you know, I can yeah. all like, slice no, it No, no, no. Yeah, of course. So <laughs> with the one, as you saw, he, he brings it up. I don't remember the page number, but in the preface or intro, he'll, I think it's in the intro where he, at the very start of the intro, where he's like, we can look at two main 
kind of schools, quote unquote, of thought. There's the, the there's Plotinus and the Neoplatonists who, of course, you know, with Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, there's this conception of the one, which, especially for Plotinus, which is kind of the, you know, in its eminence uh, with an E, it, you know, there's this image of the one splitting off from itself in this, again, in the schism kind of metaphor, and then it turns back kind of like an Orpheus way, and in turning back, it breaks off from itself, and that's where you have the creation of the Godhead and the world and the Demiurge and all these other things. Uh, it's obviously a kind of play off of Plato, except with Plato, the, the one is always already in this, um, it's already, it's, it's already a tra- state. Yeah. Transcendental. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's all, it's always subordinated to being or, or in another sense, in a dialectic of the one and the multiple. Right. And, and, um, for Laura, well, the one is not subject to that kind of, uh, that kind of dyad that the one has a kind of autonomy that is here. He might call it an absolute autonomy because this is in 89. Um, he will later for his own reasons that we don't need to get into here, (laughs) but they're interesting. He'll later, um, start critiquing the notion of, of, absolute and it has something to do a little bit to do with Hegel a little bit to do with Michel Henry and it but he would say that the one has a radical autonomy one has a radical autonomy from all thought that thought and the one or the one and he'll call it the one without being or he'll call it the one in one uh has a radical autonomy that is not in a dyad with with thought or with being, et cetera. And he'll take a turn from Lacan as you, you're familiar with the way he talks about the one being the one, uh, is foreclosed to thought, which means that, which means that all thought comes, so comes, so to speak after the one and yet the one makes thought possible. He'll call this force of thought, which is, I don't know. I'm moving a little bit faster, but that's (laughs) force of thought. Uh, he'll put the, the word of in parentheses that is or that is sort of model after the tr- French translation of Marx's Arbeitskraft, which usually is translated as labor power or labor capacity. In French, it's forced to travail. So force of thought is literally like thought power, and it has Marxist connotations. So the one is has nothing to do with being, and uh, this is what he calls radical eminence, right? And lately, he's been talking about it in terms of quantum physics, uh, in terms of like waves and particles. Uh, we'll have to get into that for at a later date, but... Does Spinoza, is he kind of working from... Or is he just kind of wiping, starting from a different point? Like, what's his de- point of departure? Right. I mean, so for Deleuze, Deleuze asks the question, and what is philosophy? Like, Laura Wells one sounds close to Spinoza's one all. And for Laura Well, the all is, um, in terms of totality, you know, in terms of, like, substance, for example, or, you know, or God, is it's already sort of intricately involved in the dialectic of... Uh, of being and the one is is not a part of that it has a radical uh autonomy and it and this is for him the one he'll he'll now he'll help he'll, he'll propose some kind of radical propositions for him the one and one he'll say is man or man in person is is, is one way to put it or generic man the way he'll say it is that the one or vision in one is 
is science correctly understood in the way that he elaborates it insofar as it has a kind of radical autonomy from the dialectic that philosophy proposes or really philosophical decision. A lot of this will, will, will become much clearer when we go into chapter one, mm-hmm. especially with his 10 matrices of describing the one. Because for Laura Well... Oh, yeah, I can see the, the vision in one. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, for Laura Well, the, the one is indifferent to its descriptions. And in fact, those descriptions have no... Because of thought's foreclosure, or th- you know, insofar as thought is foreclosed by the one, the question for Laura Well is... Spoke about Plotinus, that's one school for... And the Neoplatonists, that's one school where the one has a tradition. The other school is obviously psychoanalysis with like certain thinkers. But part of that, and, and splitting off from the Neoplatonists, is the negative theologists or the henologists, who uh, there's there's a great, some great fragments from a kind of mystical thinker named Pseudo-Dionysus. And, <laughs> nice. and uh, that's the best name we have for him. And there's a whole reason why scholars call him that. But anyway, these fragments of Pseudo-Dionysus is like the perfect example of negative theology where the one slash God, there's like an equation made there, which already Laura well wants to prevent because that gets us down a kind of Spinozist view or so to speak. But anyway, the one can only be described negatively. So the one is not, you know, has no size, no mass, no, no attributes, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so you can only talk about it in terms of what it, uh, what does not capture it. In language. Yes. Oh, so shit. It, Damn. You know what I'm talking about. Hey, like that's, yeah. that's, that's Sterner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is so great too. Like it, I see that like once you kind of like put that little seed in my head, I very much think that they're like, at least, I don't know. They're almost getting towards the same kind of my, like I said, just like to sum it up in, in a phrase would be like the history, either the history of philosophy or philosophy is spooked by its own, by its own history, its own like contingent, development and and progress through time can you say a word about what conceptually you mean by by spooked um just what that means to you you're haunted by Mm -hmm. you know it's borrowing on the kind of in a sense like the the whole gothic nature of of like marx and the the and hegel and as far as right like being spooked by the history of it's almost analogous to like the the history of dead labor is it haunts us right that's because interesting yeah the, the labor that's already been laid down and i think that's a good metaphor for the history of philosophy or philosophy you know i don't know do you mean it in like kind of the the hauntological sense yes yes too, absolutely right? Derrida, to some degree yeah okay. um, i don't know if i'm was having a difficult time i wanted to integrate vectors of marx into my discussion of sterner but it was it was too obtruse, like it was too abstract. I couldn't like, yeah, figure yeah, out. Yeah. I couldn't figure out what the fuck he's saying about ghosts and whatnot necessarily. Well, you know, that's and and bringing in Derrida into any discussion, you always have to be very. <laughs> you, have to, you always have to be very careful because he'll, right. you know, he'll just break yeah. it apart. He's and, playing and games. Dominate yeah. it. He's always sure, playing yeah. games. He's playing games, setting traps, as you were saying. Um, and yeah, I mean the because you know as you as we talked about in our B side last time. We talked a little bit about this with Laura Well Sterner, this this question of the the unique and its property. Yeah, so what Laura Well wants to do, and, and this he'll he'll actually have a, a short little paragraph on this much later in the book, where he'll want to show that non philosophy is not a, a negative theology or a he knowledge. Right. 
yet for it's him. Not, this is not doing deconstruction. Right. It's not doing deconstruction. And it's not that describing the one negatively is really just keeps language as this. It still keeps it in this matrix of the one and its descriptions are reversible or equatable or convertible. Yeah. So, so, okay, so, so that that's yeah. sort of what I would say, like in terms of spooked, I think that kind of fits yes. on what I was gesturing towards. And that makes sense. And, um, and, and so this is why in chapter one, and this is just kind of to look forward, but we'll get through a lot of this in the preface and the intro. This is why he'll provide 10 possible matrices. They're not the only ones, but right. possible ones. And Which he, is important, I think, just, just yeah. like that keeps things open, that keeps things from getting yep. closed off, because I feel like maybe that's what he's trying to say with philosophy, is that if, if philosophy is spooked and it's the, it's its own, like, it's kind of like reifies itself above, you like become in submission to philosophy as, ide- as ideal in sort of the platonic sense. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Sterner's whole vibe is like, attacking that notion of like letting ideas from the outside internalizing those as real as who the one is the unique one is rather he's saying like take ownership of yourself as object you are i am object like you can't even define i is probably even too like a too far a field for him to like commit right to. but it's the closest like approximation is to say the i yeah the unique yes. one the the creative nothing um that that same deficit, that same point of starting point of negativity that Hegel and Lacan and, and of course, Stirner, like are all sort of infused with. Yeah. And so the question becomes for Laurel, it's like, okay, I, gosh, there's a great quote. I think it's in the intro. He's talking about description. He's talking about the, the sort of the impossible wager, at least for philosophy. And he says, um, he says, in other words, from the beginning, these descriptions, he's talking about the descriptions of the one and okay, their possibility. Uh, in other words, from the beginning, these descriptions in a certain way will have to appear to philosophers as impossible tasks or wagers that are contradictory in their very language. However, for explicitly posing the problem of their internal possibility, it will be suggested that a description that is unlimited in principle and by right, i.e., which is impossible to stop or determine, is at first open like that of the one, must not be confused with the description that is assumed by philosophy to be at least partially stopped or completed, and thus in this way made to become contradictory. This is what I wanted to read. I wanted to build that up. We are attempting to lead philosophers rather than to renounce philosophy, to break through the ultimate barriers of philosophical imagery and even the speculative imagination and to be provided with the means to think the unthinkable as unthinkable, finally, without contradiction, to describe what is speculatively indescribable (laughs) without paradox. We are attempting to pass from the one's transcendent figures to its essence. So that, that phrase about... Think the unthinkable as unthinkable without contradiction. Describe what is speculatively indescribable without paradox. I think that for <laughs> Laura Well, this is why he will say the one is indifferent to his descriptions. Those descriptions don't manifest, co-determine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's, not, there's not a sort of equal playing field of language and the real or the one. Right, so, yeah, um, okay. And that, and that if the one is to be described and if it's to be described from the vantage point where it has, where it no longer has merely a kind of philosophical bearing, but it now has a, a non-philosophical bearing in the sense that Laurel means it, uh, in the sense in which he means it as vision in one, then we have to have rigorous rules. 
for its description. Now we haven't gotten to those rules yet and we will get to those later. Right. Um, and he'll build up to that. But right now I think the important thing is that this is why just kind of looking ahead that, that it's not a negative theology where it's not just that sort of all language falls short of the glory of the one. Well, well, that's, Which I, maybe that's yeah. more what Sterner, that might be what I would say Sterner is perhaps mm-hmm. like saying, which aligns with that Lacanian kind of subjectivity too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the gaps for, and the gaps and so forth. Right. For Laura, well, if we, if, if what I just said makes true that like language falls short, this is like a positive falling short. This is mm-hmm. not a, this is not like a deficit of language um, because for him, the rigorous rules of uh, he'll call it unilaterality or, you know, he'll call it foreclosure uh, of the ones who thought um, this is a fully positive mode or this is a fully positive, uh, you know, attribute of language. And, and by, by rigorously sort of severing any, I think that the, the thing that I find fascinating about this is that, and this is, this is just kind of generalizing. He, he, cause in the eighties and, and, and all the little essays that I've translated in the past few months really kind of situate this where part of Larwell's problem is why is it that in the history of philosophy, this goes back to one of those quotes that you really liked. I think you kind of said like, like, why is this fire or something like that to me? <laughs> um, I think it was about the boring, the boring and repetitive repetition that like, and this gets back to that famous quote, where it's like all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Well, for Larwell, that's, that is a problematic and a reactionary type of statement because... I mean, I would agree with that even just like, even before encountering Larwell, I still think that's, yeah, that's definitely a conservative, that's a conservative view of what philosophy is from the jump, even without engaging with Larwell directly, like as far as I'm concerned. Well, on the one hand, it makes Plato into sort of the the daddy of philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Um, when, you know, even, and I may have mentioned this to you, like even Socrates admits that uh, the father of philosophy is actually Diotima, right? Who teaches him love and teaches him, uh, but then it's appropriated and made into a kind of a male lineage thing. But um, let's see, the thing about why that is stifling of philosophy's creativity. Yeah is that what it would i mean it's the that's the sp- that's the spook that's the haunt plato is haunting that's the yes. specter that is looming over western philosophy true plato is so, the hobgoblin right you know on the scene or how are you translate that first that's, line of the conversation in that sense that's where like derrida is kind of like jousting with plato right mm-hmm to kind of like try and get well, he's trying to move towards yeah. what la royal does but la royal's like even backing up further and kind of like, that's kind of the interesting move is like I said in the notes, like I kind of got that feel of sort of what Heidegger was trying to do with, with his, you know, so sort of focus on what, like, like the experiential side that Mm -hmm. has been kind of like assumed already within philosophy. Um, Like it's already making that. And I analogously said the, you sort of the, you understood as far as like, from a grammatical or like sentence structure, you know what I mean? When you're talking about, okay, that you part is in, is in parentheses or bracketed out already. Right. Right. Before you even get started. Um, so yeah, I don't know. 
No, you're totally right, and and you could you could see especially you could see the culmination of Larwell's early work um, in the '70s and the early '80s, where he is he keeps coming back to this question of it's not really synthesizing Derrida and Deleuze, but it's playing them off each other. Yeah. And seeing how they both bring tools and approaches to overturn Platonism, you know I mean? And, and, you know, either with overturning the metaphysics or breaking out of the metaphysics of presence, blah, 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 um, which has its own, you know, Derrida has his own line that he travels through right. or Deleuze um, through the Stoics, through Bergson, Spinoza, Nietzsche, um, Try and and he and you know Deleuze kind of provocatively says that perhaps anti-Platonism or the overturning of Platonism begins with Plato himself. The question is, I think, for Laura. Oh, that's, well, that's interesting too. Like in the context of Bergson, I think in particular, right? Like that kind of circularity or spiral or right. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's right. Yeah. The and I think I think for Laura well is that in this early period, he'll call it philosophy one. This is like his he kind of periodizes his movement of, of thought. And it's not about, it's less about making neat frames for his, like a chronological or linear development and more about a quick, uh, a quick way to describe the main themes and problems that he was circling through. So with philosophy one, what he realized, because one of his first book, his second book, textual machines, this is where he, he, he's really, trying to connect Deleuze and Derrida through um, Nietzschean will to power and an eternal return. So it's, <laughs> it's this hyper-charged, generalized deconstruction that is no longer merely of the text, but is uh, about atextual forces. And like in a transcendence, in a transcendent point of view or, or no? Mm. Because that's kind of what I was getting. I was like feeling like, okay, yeah. so he's kind of almost, it's almost like horseshoe. <laughs> it almost feels like horseshoe theory. Um, I don't know if you're, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're familiar yeah. with that kind of like reactionary, of like whatever communist line of like, so it's like you travel far enough, you wind up back at Platonism or like some type of transcendental. Sure. Whatever. Yes. Yeah. I, and Which I felt like he was arguing, like we need to kind of like recon sort sort of reframe this and free philosophy from its history you know it's it's to that, some degree but he's still like i feel like maybe he even like is falling into that platonic trap in a sense but i don't know <laughs> that i mean that's obviously the we we have to make we have to bring those objections to him we have to bring uh, what, what he'll say is that non-philosophy one of them one of the ways it uses philosophy as material is seizing upon its resistance, resistance to the name of the real is what I'll say. Um, resistance to the one foreclosing thought that, and a good example of this. So I'll try to describe this in the way that I found intriguing. Um, he only kind of hints at it here in the intro, but he'll say, and this is a good way to talk about, you know, the, uh, both what I said about Hegel, Schelling and Fichte and what, I, uh, what we said about the footnotes to Plato thing. So on the one hand, Larwell believes that sort of philosophy's ultimate telos is to become a science. And that's, and this is in an analytic sense that that is because of its resistance to the, the name of the real. It knows that it knows at least unconsciously that it's spontaneous use of language is non falsifiable. 
unlike science, right? Where it right. can, where you can, you can perform experimentation. You can, you can falsify hypotheses and whatever. Philosophy doesn't doesn't work that way, and it legitimizes its own spontaneous uses of language to describe being life, etc. Um, and what you see with a good, good, more modern example is you see with like, like Kant and Heidegger. So with, with Kant, um, the reason why we need critique, the reason why we need, he'll basically say that, you know, metaphysics is the queen of the sciences. And it's a question of eliminating the transcendent uses of reason, you know, et cetera. And, and thereby we can, we can provide these rigorous frameworks for in these categories and these and the architectonics and the you know the transcendental logic and aesthetic etc that 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 will then provide us means of warding off illusion or whatever it may be that will help in the end science to progress so that's that's one type of pretension and a more an even more recent is with heidegger where in the second introduction to being in time heidegger is basically saying that there's a crisis in the sciences and it needs to be grounded. And only a phenomenology, uh, a true phenomenology worth its name, can provide that foundation. And it's precisely because science has forgotten the question of, of being, uh, or even forgotten the forgetting of, you know, whatever. And it's that, and this is why Heidegger will claim that science doesn't think. Yeah. That science, science knows. Right. Yeah. Philosophy thinks. Science is trying to, science by its very nature, like, and it's objective. It's like claims to objectivity can't, right? <laughs> but but Laura Well will say no. Science science does think, and it has it has an autonomous form of thought. Its mode is is different, and its mode is if philosophy is reflexively naive and spontaneous, then there is this unreflexive mode, uh, this blindness and deafness of science that is actually this uh, a very positive aspect. Laura Well shows us that. You know, just with the two examples of Kant and Heidegger, but we can we we can find it in virtually any philosophy. Problem is, philosophy wants to be a science; it envies science. There's this resistance where it wants to kind of prove itself to be more directly in touch with the real, so right? And thereby, it believes in itself. Uh, it believes in itself as as being real, in in the very full sense of the term. Gotcha. And therefore believes that its own spontaneous use of language conceptualized or, or you know, shorn of conceptualization and, 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 and sort of taking on the, the vestment of natural language. It believes that it can provide foundations, ground for, for science. And for Laura Well, this is what he calls the war in thought, that philosophy has always had this warmongering nature about it and has always led this war against science. Now, at best, science is... I'm just wondering how he sees, because like science and philosophy developmentally share a common, or like in a sense, they share a common, they're not, they're not, they're not separate. They're, there's no, like, that's a false dialectic between them. I I would, I would say that sort of in the beginning of, in the beginning. So you you have, you have... (laughs) Like the the pre-Socratics, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Are doing something. So with like someone like Thales, if you want to, consider him the first philosopher in the Western tradition. What we have is this metaphysical utterance that everything is water. And this, okay, this is where philosophy and science 
and you, we could say other disciplines but right now. We'll just stick to those two share a common root or soil and that soil being the most spontaneous, but also technologically in the sense of like Greek techne um, involved way of thinking, which is mythology, right? So mythology and religion are kind of these two different subsoils from which philosophy and science co-primordially to use another Heideggerian term, like <laughs> begin on the same ground, but they diverge later. Right. Or at yeah. least they diverge very quickly, almost like the big bang, like instantaneously. Right. And what I mean by that is like mythology is this uses of language that encodes within itself certain explanations for why things are the way they are, at least especially in the Western world. So we have these, you know, these myths of, of Promethean fire and these other things and, and, and they can be read. There's all kinds of different elements involved there because yeah, there's the technological aspect to explain things that we lack at the time we lacked scientific methods for explaining quote unquote objectively. So they have all, they have all this speculative imagery, but they're very provocative and they're very, they are thought provoking yet Thales, when he says all is water, he's not speaking mythologically. It may have echoes of that, but he's actually putting forth a, a metaphysical principle. And of course, then you have later thinkers that, that all is air, all is, all is fire. And then of course you have a kind of a mixture of, of elements and we start to see philosophy take shape. And, you know, it's with Plato that Nietzsche claims that Greek culture becomes mixed or Greek thought even becomes mixed. Uh, he calls he said, he'll say culture, but he means it in a very broad sense uh, because Plato tries to, I'll use the word synthesize, but I mean it loosely. He tries to yeah. sort of harmonize these different principles and he even brings in mathematics, you know, with the Timaeus and these other things. So with Thales, with the, with this primordial pronouncement that all is water, we finally have a kind of identifiable use of language that is no longer performing a kind of mythological encoding, but is, but is attempting a type of autonomy of pr pronouncement. Now, on the other hand, it has scientific consequences too, because this is when we start to have, like with the Atomists and with Lucretius and the other things, we, we do see a kind of, we do see a kind of difficult to necessarily separate the two. I mean, thought is, thought is attempting to build a, a plane for itself, as Deleuze might say. And yet at the same time, we see that philosophy and science, as they're in dialogue, they don't use the same methods of of moving forward in this space. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, experimentation, falsification, the use of hypothesis in philosophy even, right? It's, it's, it's not the same conceptually as, as in science. This is, I, I think about like the way Freud talks about, um, Freud talks about the drive of self-preservation and the drive and the sexual drive that in the infant and the child, they are co-primordial and they stem from the, from a same kind of source. And, the, and he'll even say that the sexual drive is propped quote unquote up on the self-preservative drive. But then, but then as the ego develops, they, they start to diverge, but it's this primordial propping that brings is one of the reasons why the sexual drive leaning on or propped up on the self-preservative drive because of the child's helplessness, as we know, in terms of mammals, we, uh, we, we need 
yeah, uh, long, a father's long gestational period. Right. We need, we, yeah, exactly. We need a father substitute or and a mother substitute to provide uh, protection and also nourishment, et cetera. So the sexual drive gets kind of caught up in, in some of the, the pressures and, and vicissitudes of the, of the, of the self-preservative drive. And this is kind of a very early indication looking forward of how the sexual drive gets contaminated by daddy mommy. Uh, obviously later with, you know, Freud later with the, you know, with the Oedipus complex, he tries to speculatively universalize all of this and loses some of that um, dynamicity. But uh, anyway, so yeah, originally philosophy and science are kind of propping one another and boosting one another. They take different paths and they take, they take different ways of interrogating, problematizing, conceptualizing, and providing solutions, right? I mean, the, the form of a philosophical solution to what is everything takes on a different type of linguistic utterance than, and, and maybe even science wouldn't even ask that question in that way, precisely yeah. because of its uh, more, it's, it's less global and, and much more local and, and it works through functions, as Deleuze might say, rather than concepts. Anyway, so um, the point being, so you see with Kant and Heidegger, there's just two examples that philosophy has always kind of been a rival, maybe maybe even like a twin rival of science. And it's always wanted to ground science or to, or to give it a foundation or to, and, and this is because it sort of wants to be science and have that type of, that type of autonomy and have that type of concreteness. It's, it's a kind of jealousy thing uh, just, just to be very, crude about it. Yeah. But the, as a consequence too, this leads to a, a second type of warfare and it's among philosophies, among philosophical decisions. So you see with already, as we mentioned with Thales uh, saying all is water, Heraclitus saying all is fire and becoming, you already have a kind of warfare of we have to choose as philosophical subjects so to speak, even though Laura Wall tries to make this clear that we've never been in philosophy. We have to, we don't have to leave philosophy to get to the real. That's always a kind of a, a transcendental hallucination. But anyway, insofar as we are exploited by philosophical decision, and I'll use that term in the fullest sense of the, of the word, as you maybe saw, I think that's at the end of the intro when he says that um, this exploitation of thought so you have a warmongering between philosophy and science as we kind of crudely binarize them. And then we have warmongering amongst philosophical decisions so that every, this is partly why it's conservative and repetitive is, and this is part of the spooking too, as you said, and you know, whether Plato is the granddaddy of them all or, or, you know, even in closer in our time, like Deleuze or Badu or, or whatever, um, that each philosophical decision, you know, tries to, tries to show how it's closer to the real, closer to the thing in itself, whatever you want to call it, right. as though it were a question of accessing or being infused with a kind of jouissance that follow me, follow my ideas, follow my system, and you will get closer to the idea, right, too. I mean, with Socrates, you think about his, this is what Nietzsche finds regrettable in Socrates at, at the end when he's like, uh, he's like, give Asclepius a rooster, right? He's like, he's like happy to that, that all that life's just a long disease and we need to get rid of it so we can get, we can have this eternal dance 
with the forms. And it's that kind of, he, see, he sees in that a kind of exhaustion, a kind of a negative valuation of life. And that for him has to be rooted out. That has to be, that prevents us from having the kind of eternal affirmation of joy. You know, and, and Laura, will, will, we could talk about this another time, but Laura Well will critique and Deleuze this naive affirmationism that we find from Lucretius to Spinoza and, and someone in Bergson to, uh, but also obviously in, uh, in Nietzsche and this cultivation of, of joyfulness and of, you know, active uh, affects that for Laurel, this has its own problematic nature, but yeah. So what Laurel wants to do, and I, I set up all this just to kind of <laughs> indicate, and this is, we can only indicate this here for this, uh, but he'll, he'll get into this later. At this point in the 80s and early 90s, and even late 90s, Laura Well talks about, this is about non-philosophy. One of the aspects of it is about introducing democracy into thought. And that traditionally, what he finds problematic is that generally, the peace treaty has come from science to philosophy, because philosophy forces its hand. And science has to try to make a, almost like a, a ceasefire or armistice, and for Laura Well, this is the first time, or at least the, the first real time, uh, that philosophy, by becoming non-philosophy, can offer a peace treaty to science, and thereby, and thereby, at the same time, in the same stroke, in the same movement, cease the warmongering, the, the internal civil warfare amongst philosophical decisions, insofar as they all are emplaced you know, as he says, in a, in a, in a decisional, a pre-decisional chaos or Quora that, that makes them equivalent in terms of their truth value for, or in terms of their, you know, they, they no longer aspire to say, I, I, I'm closer to the real than you are, than, than some other decision. And I will leave off there just to, just to kind of give us a little space to, to breathe and, 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 and maybe you have something you want to turn to. Feels like Laurel is perhaps like this is an attempt to inspired from Deleuze, I think, an attempt to recuperate science and philosophy in yeah, a certain it's, it's, in a certain sense. Um, it's, yeah, go on, go on. I, I will say it, just real quickly that uh, one of the things I like about what is philosophy, even though it's a radically different book than Anti Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus than even the Kafka book, and it's arguable that Guattari may not have had much to do with it, if at all. Uh, I think Deleuze still thought of what inspired him to write it, and I assume he wrote it most, was that that he couldn't have had these reflections without Guattari's input, and therefore it was still under the aegis of that collective assemblage that they talked about. So, But one of the cool things is like, you know, very quickly, I will, it's important uh, because they have the two footnotes about what is, about philosophy and non-philosophy in what is philosophy? Uh, and so they, they say Laurel is one of the most interesting contemporary thinkers, which I think is like really high praise coming from Deleuze. Uh, and Laurel will get to write the, the year of Deleuze's death. He will write the response to Deleuze, which I'll have to send you at some, I'll have to send you that. Remind me. For Deleuze, philosophy works through concepts, right? And that has to do with, with sort of, capturing the virtual, harnessing it, right? And so this interplay between concepts and events or the incorporeal. Uh, science has to do with functions, which is about sort of the movement of actualization. And then art has the percept of the affect 
and it's about exhibiting the actual and the virtual or the virtual and the actual um, sort of bridging, well, concepts bridge, that's not the word Deleuze would say, but sort of um, art, art is able, art, it's not a synthesis of science and philosophy, obviously. It's not a synthesis of the concept, the function, but it, but it has, a, has a dynamism that involves the virtual and the actual in a way that the other two don't. So he, what I find fascinating about that is like Deleuze is, is able to very concretely sort of give a rel, at least relative autonomy to philosophy, science, and art as these three different movements of the plane. And of course they take on different speeds and all of that. That's to kind of get, get a little deep into that book. And I know at some point you may want to even discuss it because it is, absolutely it's a good read, <laughs> but for, I think for Laura, well, for Laura, well, it's interesting that non-philosophy and I, I try to, I try to always remember this, even though it's easy to forget that we'll see in chapter four, how, how we do non-philosophy. But for, for Laura Well, he kind of even indicates it in the introduction that given certain principles of, given certain rules, which we'll get into later, what we do is we build a text. So we can take, for example, we could take like a, a platonic dialogue, we could take a philosophical term, you know, whatever it is, uh, becoming animal or the idea, uh, whatever. And based on these rules, and after we've already suspended the philosophy sufficiency, which I'll come back to in a minute, which, which gives us that, that space, that free space, if you will, that equivalent space of, of the pre-decisional chaos, then we can take philosophy as material occasion support for rehandling and reworking. And part of that rehandling and re reworking is kind of inscribing, and this reminds me of like Derrida's Surator, the under erasure sort of inscribing the sort of cancellation of philosophies onto theological aspects, as you might say. So <laughs> the good example is uh, God without being. And he takes that term from mostly Jean-Luc Marion and, and somewhat from Levinas. Or another one was like, um, you know, he'll also say like the one without being or the one without all. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of times the without is, is the prepositional inscription of canceling out the the onto or the or the logos whatever and all of that comes to the fact that three things happen at least three things one is there's a theoretical aspect to non-philosophy right and and it already has a way that that already involves the way in which he thinks the radical separation between language and and the real the other is an analytic aspect because what is taken as material occasion of support already kind of manifests or exhibits philosophy's resistance to the name of real, as I mentioned earlier. And then it has as a consequence, but it's not a consequence is necessarily the right word, but it's kind of a superposed effect. It has artistic or he'll say non-aesthetic effects because the ways of rehandling material art isn't just one way to do it. As, as we said earlier, right? It's, I mean, really non-philosophies, it's, it's, it's about an infinite type of variation. So there is this, this question of art, science, and, and philosophy, but, it, but they have new dimensions in the reworking and the rehandling. But the analytic one is, or he'll call it the dualytic for his own reasons, oh, nice. is, is, very, is very important because I think for Laura Well, the reason why he's seeking out non-philosophy in the first place is because he keeps seeing as I kind of tell that philosophy has this 
unconscious, as I said, I call it jealousy, right, uh, of science or it's, it's pretension, et cetera. There's this, there's this uh, symptom. He'll call it a symptom. There's a, there's a symptom of philosophy to try to, to, to sort of, cause it's, cause it's bootstrapping itself through its own language to, yeah. to, to not just describe the real, but in describing it sort of fold the Generating, real yeah. onto its language. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, Guattari says it really, he has a non-philosophical moment very quickly. It's, it's almost a throwaway sentence, but in the machine of conscious, you know, he says, uh, uh, concepts must be molded onto reality and not the other way around. Right. So, it's are folded onto, right? Yeah. It's, it's doing anything else is first of all, idealist. Right. Um, and second of all, second of all, just, that's just not, that's just how it works. Uh, but philosophy spontaneously does the opposite or at least thinks that it's folding uh, concept and reality at the same time onto one another. And it's that kind of equivocation that, that Laura well tries to provide a, a, a rigorous means of, not only like articulating and pointing out, but showing to be deficient and actually showing to be constrictive, right? Yeah. You know what this is kind of making me think about is like one of our mutual friends, I think talks has kind of discussed this about the way that like what Deleuze and I, or like I've talked with other people and they're kind of saying that like Deleuze and Guattari are arriving at a lot of these like even systems theory and, and things along that lines, they're de- arriving at the same sort of thing from a metaphorical like standpoint through like language and like the system of language. And uh, also to like drive that a little bit f- further is the way that Guattari and the Machinic Unconscious was saying that Kafka and Proust and, and Joyce are equivalent to like scientists. Like these are, you know what I mean? Right. Is that, a, is that an example of like Watari embracing this kind of, or taking the non-philosophical approach? You know, God, that's so fascinating. I think that, yeah, he says that um, kind of like, like Freud and Newton, isn't that how kind of he puts it? I mean, we could look if we wanted to, yeah. but he, he does say something uh, that like, yeah, uh, Joyce's works, Proust's work, Kafka's works, they, they, are like these now it's through art but they have they are like scientific voyages right they that you go on these journeys and they have these implications for i mean like just looking at like Deleuze's proust and signs like proust has these implications for this apprenticeship of signs and and how that gets us kind of to the essence of truth and he finds in proust this fact that thought is not that the philosopher of goodwill and of friendship <laughs> as though thought were always about agreement that that falls short that that's a false image of the violence inherent in thought which is why Deleuze will piggybacking off or or mixing Proust with Artaud will will try to discuss the genesis of thought as, as a violence that happens to and in thought and therefore, but it also comes back to his book on Kant, where it's about the discord of the faculties and their, uh, not their mutual harmony that, that generates thinking. So, yeah, I, I do think that, um, I do think that for Laura Well, what, what he wants to, I mean, for him, you know, the potential infinite variation of non-philosophical mutation because they'll call it mutation and not a revolution. He wants to, in my intro, in my translator's intro, which I don't blame you for skipping, I actually told you to skip it. But <laughs> one of the things that I riff on is the 
It's not about a Copernican revolution. And Laura will say this in many places, right? It's not about a centering or decentering because it's not about moving science to the center because he says like when science is truly at the center, you know, um, is it about dissolving? Is it about dissolving them? I think it's, it's about that revolution for him is, is always about this analogy of turning and overturning as though, as though it were about a teeter totter mutation is something radically different. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, he'll talk about, and, and he says this very early in the preface, right. Where he says like, why is it the philosophy in its kind of conservative, repetitive, why hasn't it undergone the mutations that art went through with cubism and abstract art? Why didn't it, why wasn't it able to mutate in the way of, uh, of 12 tone serialism? Why didn't it have these events that caused us to mutate like, uh, with the advancements of thermodynamics and metastability and non-Euclidean geometry, all these things that science and art went through, why is philosophy still still doing the same old shit? Yeah. Because it, because it spontaneously practices revolution and doesn't actually understand yeah. uh, that spontaneity. And because of that, uh, those revolutions are always reactionary in the sense in which we yeah. discussed earlier, where it's like always it being about... Trapped in the dyad movement. Yeah, and, and being about another great rivalry, I mean, to bring up Heidegger again, uh, I, for example, Levinas is extremely important for understanding Laura Well, I'm not going to even discuss Levinas's ideas except for to say, like, one of the greatest rivalries is, is Levinas and Heidegger. Because if you read, like, Totality Infinity, for example, it's like every page, maybe even every, like, sentence or paragraph, there is this contentiousness with at least being a time, if not some other work of Heidegger's. And it's that type of agon and rivalry that is what is traditionally standard in the standard mode productive of new philosophies. And I think that's, that's for Laruel why philosophical decision is rare because the variety of, or the variation of its, of its creation is, is about reversing overturning etc and it's not about who's on top and who's on bottom right it's it's, it is about this sort of infinitely curved chaotic space right wherein philosophical decisions are sort of stripped of and i guess this goes back to sufficiency and i've been saying we've been talking about it without talking about it but 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 non-philosophy gets he dropped the term non-philosophy he it's still conserved in a sense, but it's but it's he'll talk he'll talk about it in terms of non-standard philosophy because as we've pointed out, may hopefully made clear to the listener. I mean, maybe that's a better term because it's less. It impl- I think the implication is less like this dialectical tension or like this. Yeah, that's this, true. Uh, right? This antagonism and like dissolving mm-hmm. that, and that's what I mean. Like when I kind of say dissolving this this kind of spooked barrier. Mm-hmm. I think that for Laruel, I believe he did. I believe non-philosophy was meant two ways. One was already a shorthand for non-Euclidean, right? About suspending this postulate analogous to the suspension of the, of the infinite lines for non-Euclidean geometry, suspending this postulate that there's, you know, one decision and one decision alone for some attribute mode, whatever. Whereas for Laura, well, there's an infinity of equivalent, you know, uh, decisions for, for each of these, these conceptual particles. So, so like, the same, Delo- but, but, is that like a, uh, just to clarify, no, no, no. Like, as far as Deleuze, like, is that multiplicity and um, the kind of Deleuzean? Let's, let's see. Kind of notion or? 
Are we talking of a good way? Else? I'm trying to think of a good way to, to say this. You know, multiplicity, where Deleuze gets multiplicity is from Bergson, who right. uh, obviously says, you know, there's there's quantitative multiplicity and we understand that in a, in a very traditional sense. Right. And then there's qualitative multiplicity and that understanding. That's a fascinating, that's a whole, like, that's, right. a, sexy, that's a sexy thing. <laughs> avenue well, and, right? and, and, and he gets this from Bergson where, like, you can add or subtract from quantitative multiplicities without changing the very dimensions of it, right? You're just, you're really merely uh, sort of manipulating the reals or the, or the rationals or even sometimes the irrationals. It's, it's, it's on a, it's on a numerical plane. So the dimension is, is, is still numerical. Whereas with now, this is not to bring in something like the imaginary number of those other things, which you <laughs> could quibble about, but the point remaining the same with qualitative multiplicities uh, and Deleuze will be very mindful of this when he thinks about becoming, when he thinks about assemblages, when an element is added or subtracted, so to speak, just to be quick about it, then the dimensions of the multiplicity change. So it's not the same uh, either entity or whatever you want to use the word for. It's not the same. The multiplicity like radically in a, shifts. In a fractal sense or no? That's, I think Deleuze would have, yeah, I mean, he would have had, you, you, could, you could definitely, it wouldn't have to be, not all multiplicities would necessarily be fractal. But yeah, that, there's something interesting about that with the sort of the in-between dimensions or in between real real numbers for the dimensions uh, so it could have a fractal aspect and in fact to go to Laura well I mean part of the I brought up the non-aesthetic sort of variations made possible by the non-philosophical manipulation of taking philosophy as material and it's precisely that that possibility of infinite variations or infinite manipulations in the non-philosophical vein that causes him to propose this notion of he'll call them like fractal islands when he talks about this non-aesthetic, this non-aesthetic approach where the, the products of non-philosophical manipulation and variation in their aesthetic mode are, yeah, they're, they're sort of, they're, again, they're all kind of on an equivalent plane and, and sort of mirroring each other because of the, again, the rigorous rules that are applied, but they, but they can all each have their own sort of autonomy equivalently. But yeah, so yeah, I think that that's the same thing with the second part of the reason why I think Larwell keeps the non and non-philosophy is to elicit a reaction, a resistance from philosophy or the philosopher where they hear non-philosophy and normally they would think, ah, yes. I mean, cause this is how Deleuze and Feuerbach uses it, right? Uh, uh, where it's everything that is not philosophy. So more or less like layman, Right. Um, yeah. A non-philosopher would be be a layman, so to speak, or some other discipline that, yeah. You know, what I was wondering, I mean, maybe this is a good like intervention as far as like whenever we're doing, whenever we're memeing or even whenever we're doing this podcast, is that a non, is that non-philosophy to an extent or like, how does that, th how I, does that strike you? Um, with memes? You know, I almost feel like or it's... Memes, shitposting, et cetera, right? Is that, sure. that non-philosophy or am I... Am I, I being too literal not, in terms of? <laughs> I would think it would be more in the Deleuzian and Hegelian, or in, the, in I think it would be more in a standard sense of non-philosophy, gotcha. where it's it's. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, a lot of the times, and we we've talked about this a lot between the stuff that we do, um, including memes, and I, I'll qualify a little bit more about memes. I mean, yeah, the shitposting, it's it has artistic dimensions. 
Yes. Because it's wordplay. And it's arti- it has it, artistic it, dimensions. It has, there's multiplicity. There's, I mean, it has, it has, it has philosophical dimensions as far as it's meant yeah. to make one think. But there's it has deconstruction. Artistic, right. Uh, so it already has a kind of metalinguistic yes. aspect to it. Uh, it, ha- it has artistic aspects because it's, it's, it's not just trying to make us think, it's trying to make us feel. Yeah. Um, it's like the relieving of intensities as well within like yep. the, into, like within the subject. So then it has a kind of schizoanalytic right. aspect. And you said multiplicity, so it has a machinic aspect. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because it's its own, and like, it's almost like the akin to the history of philosophy, right? Because we have to have the starting point of like all of these reference points that we're building on, not only in terms of the philosophy that we're referencing, whether in a shit post or what have you, but like the historical development of memes themselves and internet discourse and the grammar right. of it, the structure of the sentence, the like that, those, those elements that are like underneath the underlying sort of uh, memetic structure, I think. Right. Yeah. And, Skeleton and so, or flows and, or, I don't know. <laughs> and I think, I think meme, the memes, they don't have to be this, but generally when we say meme on the internet in, in terms of internet discourse, we, we mean a lot of these aspects that we just discussed, but with a visual complement as well. It isn't, obviously meme is more general. Necessarily, I, like, I yeah, even define true. it as, even a shit post, I think in some, right, there are verbal. As mimetic. Versus. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got, I got you. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, normal. I, I guess I would just say that like, the way it's become connoted is that meme is is a visual format but you're right it's not that's not how i mean words are visual right like in a sense true um now you can supplement the meme the meme with the image like the word with the image that's supplementing the failure of language to capture right right yeah and there's something more immediate about it yeah to but it brings in the same things where it's it's causing us to to think to feel and potentially to act so it has like a kind of there's an there's an eminence to it there's an eminence, right? Or am I? Am I, using uh, right? I always well, get eminence and imminent, and I, you know, I don't know. Well, there's three types of eminence, <laughs> right? It, it depends. You mean it with an A, the way Laurel uses it? Uh, I, I think I was pro- I'm probably thinking in terms of Deleuze more so. Well, the, yeah, I mean, Deleuze too, I guess, you know, eminence of life, you know. I guess maybe, I don't know, eminence becoming. Um, Right. Like you said, there's that immediate, the, the immediacy of it is sort yeah. of, so that's probably, that might be the better way. I think, I think, yeah, immediacy would be, although there are some memes that are, that have like walls of text. So it's almost right. like, it's almost like the, the immediacy is meant to force us to like mediate. Yeah. And exactly. obviously it, it is, it is a, it is an aspect of, it is a medium, but there, but, but there's, there's sort of varying degrees. Yeah. I would just say that, not in the strict sense would memes or shit posting be non-philosophical. Now they could take on a non-philosophical form if they conformed to the, the rigorous rules. And I think that, that, that that's the thing, right? That a lot of the times you are doing non-philosophy in a restrained mode in a, in a mode that, that is analogous without um, necessarily performing the maneuvers and, and procedures uh, that Laurel defines. Right. So it's, okay. it's kind of, it's almost like a, um, it's almost like a, a sort of intuitive manipulation and rehandling and rehashing. And so in that sense, I would say yes and no, no in the, in, in the strict sense of not technically 
applying the rules and following the sort of, but, but yes, in the sense in which you are, you know, more loosely producing these or, or this movement of, of variation. And so I think, yeah, that's, I think that's probably why we both have this interest in Deleuze. Uh, we, we both have this interest in, you know, yeah, yeah. these other thinkers. Yeah. Guattari, um, Bataille and these other thinkers who, who really are able to Concress the the moments of thinking and being and feeling and, and doing and acting and um, and I just think that uh that, yeah it's it's we'll get to the we'll get to the rules at some point and it'll become much much more concrete gotcha about what non philosophy at least at this stage as I said is doing when it when it builds a text really what Larwell is doing here in this preface and introduction is kind of is posing this problem about philosophy's sterility and its repetition and its and its self-enclosure and its its sort of reactionary aspects and I'll, I'll just get personal for a second the reason why i was drawn to Laurel initially is because you know being raised in the church and sort of one of the first books that i really studied intimately was was the bible oh, absolutely. And, and i grew up around in a very small church outside of my family with individuals who, whom I thought were professed to be Christians, but not that they necessarily did bad things, but, but their judgmental attitudes, I could tell that they were hypocrites. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. and, and it left me with a very bad taste yes. and, 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 <laughs> it, and it kind of pushed me away from yes. at least the church. If, and it sort of left me in a kind of free fall state of questioning my own sort of belief in, in God, or at least the Christian God. Yeah. And oh, so fucking, like, here, right. here we are again. As, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and that kind of questioning of faith is also a questioning of a uh, kind of a principle of reality, right? Cause, cause if, cause if you start to question sort of the metaphysical uh, structures of heaven and hell, you start to question omnipotence, om, omnipresence, these other things, your reality starts to shift subtly or more or less. Right. And so I think I was about 16 when I, uh, <laughs> got, got, yeah, you probably have a similar story. I'm very, I'm very, uh, I'm very angry and resentful about all of that. Like, I feel uh -huh. like if, if they, if there had just been honesty about existence from the get go, it would have been, le it's less jarring to like have right. your kind of be built up on, on these spooks and then like have your little like bubble burst. That's right. a traumatic, that's a traumatic experience. Oh, sure. Like, it's a coming of age story, right? Yeah. A lot of a lot of people can can resonate with that. So around sixteen, I first read Kierkegaard and Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche, and so Fear and Trembling was the first thing that and and Sartre. So it was a kind of an existentialism class, I believe. So uh, I remember reading Fear and Trembling and and being that that caught me because I already had obviously the you know the biblical background and obviously Kierkegaard's a gifted writer. He pushes that. I, the teacher did a really good job of explaining the teleological suspension of the ethical. Cause otherwise if I had come to it myself, I don't think I would have, I may have not been curious enough to pursue it. I may have let that kind of, you know, Kierkegaard spat with Hegel. I may have let that be like, ah, well this is all academic or this is all about turf wars. Right. Yeah. Um, and then of course, Nietzsche, Young and Neville, I think that that was the text that really said, you know, really got me to say, shit, this is, there's something here, not just in Nietzsche, but he was definitely someone that, I mean, Nietzsche polarizes, right? He, he really, he really, this is about that whole superposition of thinking, being, doing, acting, feeling, 
uh, that, that, that was an awakening. So, so then, you know, I, I got into English and in English that the second phase of that happened, I say English, English degree literature. And because I love books, I love reading, I love writing. And at some point when you decide to become an English major and do a degree, you have to take a class called practical criticism. And that's when you get to learn all the applied theoretical models. So you learn about queer theory. You, you In that class, you get to dabble a little bit into Lacan, a little bit into deconstruction and Derrida and I get a little taste. Yeah. Of all these I, took a, I took a similar class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that leaves you wanting more. And of course right. you're kind of, your head's under the water where you're doing that and you don't know what the, like you read the mirror stage, you know, essay and, and it's like, Oh, I'm glad that's five pages, but what the fuck's going on? <laughs> uh, so I got deeper into that and, and then I eventually went and got a philosophy degree as well. And that's when I kind of honed my thinking and, and got introduced to Deleuze and, and Badu. And then from that Larwell and, and I, you know, went that translation path that we've talked about a little bit. I have a um, funny anecdote whenever. Go, please go ahead and, cause I, I'll come back to my main point about my, my personal thing, but <laughs> please, yeah, interrupt. So it, it's funny because uh, like Todd McGowan, who I've had on the show a couple of times, right? Like he's, he's kind of like follows in the footsteps of, uh, of Zizek a lot in terms of like Hegel and Lacan and so forth. But uh, I'm like, I'm kind of angry or not angry, but I'm kind of like sad that I just discovered psychoanalysis over the last th- three or four years. Mm-hmm. Instead of being like shown it earlier, the teacher that taught that sort of, we had, a, like I said, a similar class that I took as far as like a theoretical grounding for for English was um, hired like the following year, like Todd McGowan left the school that I went to just mm-hmm. one year in advance. And that teacher and that teacher is the one that like recommended that I read Simulacra and Simulation mm-hmm. and yep. A Thousand Plateaus. Oh, wow. So I think it's, it's kind of funny that like, just like the little, like the chance encounter or like the mist, the mist encounter. Sure. Psychoanalysis. Yeah. But here yeah. I sort of still wind up back. <laughs> back there uh, what's, it's kind what's of fascinating what's todd i know that i follow todd and I know he's, you, he's not on twitter oh okay there's there was someone else who, uh that you talked to sterner about that i think i follow and i just uh, oh uh it could be well it could be rosenstock or one of the acid horizon um fellows gotcha uh, i'll ask a- you later i but, think it's um, adam adam is maybe adam, he was on the it, show yes it's the the he's British, the, the he's insurrectionary, the, the yes. Hegel, yeah. yeah, Hegel, Sterner, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that is interesting that the mist, the mist encounters. Yeah, um, I have a similar story about meeting my wife, but uh, I'll, you know, that's <laughs> that's something I'll, I'll I'll talk about yeah. at a certain point. I could have met her much earlier in in my life, but you know, it's everything worked out for the best. So I'm not gonna not gonna regret that mist yeah. encounter. But anyway, the point being about the what Laura will made me see was that I had come to replace a kind of void in my thinking, in my my heart, and you could even say in my belief, in my yeah. desires. I think I know exactly uh, where you're going. And it's like, right. again, the same. Yeah. And, it, and he made me question that, I don't want to say a fetishization, but he made me question that attachment, I'll say. Right. He made me question that drive to think and to know and et cetera through philosophy. And, and then because at some point it did become, at some point it did become very intense and very, I mean, the translation track, right? That was, again, another thing where it's like, as I've told you before, it was in many cases very selfish because there were these thinkers where I was like, well, I, I, 
have to translate them because I, I want to understand them. And I don't, I don't know if anyone else is going to, and I'm impatient. I don't want to wait around, <laughs> but then it became like, well, I want to share as well. Right. Yeah. So there's that out. Nietzsche always talks about that altruistic drive that kind of piggybacks off of, or, or is put forward as the, as the face of the, the mask for the, the sort of egoistic drive. But in any case, yeah. So Laura well made me, for example, the way that I kind of formulated is, you know, this question about this, this classical theological question of like, does God exist? Does God not exist? Now Deleuze and Logic of Sense shows when we analyze sense in the way that he lays it out, God exists, God does not exist as propositions. They have the same sense. And so with Laura Well and his indebtedness to Deleuze and of course, with his indebtedness to Derrida on deconstruction, Laura Well shows with this, I took the suspension of the principle of sufficient philosophy to apply to that question, this, that the question itself is not a concrete problem, uh, so to speak, in delusional terms. That suspending the principle of existence as pertaining to, as pertaining to God, and Larwell shows this in some of his works in the 90s with his ethics stuff, and it's about God without being, etc. That suspension and, and the groping towards that also encompassed you know, uh, Larwell, what he talked about in this introduction as philosophy's belief in itself as in the real, right? That it's this, that it's this intense bootstrapping and self-belief and, and, and auto legitimizing, uh, and the spontaneity that there's something, there's something wrapped up as well in this spontaneous question of does God exist? And that, that that question is not a well-formed question. And that I, for example, I have a, I have a schizophrenic friend named Hans and he kind of started ranting a little bit about uh, being a good person and religious and all this other stuff. And that, and that whether or not Jesus existed and, and that he had to exist. And I told him, I said, look, you know, whether or not he existed empirically, historically has nothing to do with the event of Christ and the truths that follow from it. And that the truth that Paul uh, works out for this universalism that overturns the Mosaic law and applies for everyone for all time and becomes a truth of the human condition. So I kind of think about it in a similar way where it's like that this question of God existing or not is not a well-formed problem. It's not a well-formed question. And, and that I think is what drew me to Laura well is because he was doing that, that same thing, but with what I, but, but for philosophy and what I had already, what I had already kind of attached to, because he says, you know, this question about philosophy existing, he's like, yeah, sure. Philosophy exists in the way that it conceives itself of existing, but, but what hides in that, that, that statement that philosophy exists, that there is philosophy, what hides in this, <laughs> if not some sort of, uh, yeah, there's a, yeah. Is it, is it an equivalence? I don't know. Uh, well, it's, I think it's interesting they're, too they're that he analogies. also La, yeah. La is also directly invoking the Judaic as well too, right? Yes, it's the when we'll see this a lot more as the book goes on. This this especially with the 20th century, he sees that the with the linguistic turn and with the analytic turn, there's this he'll call it the Judaic turn, right? This this Greco-Judaic tradition. Just one like anecdotal thing, and you perhaps sure. can you perhaps can share in this too is I have actually had this thought that the experience of 
or like the experience and exposure to Christian theology. And I think mm-hmm. for me, that was like Southern Baptist fundamentalist Christianity. Oh, yeah. Wow. So like, you got the hardcore version. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what I think is interesting is like in many ways, there's a certain equivalence to like the broader, the broader post-structuralist or even like psychoanalytic tradition and sort of this, dis- in like this distortion, right? Because like there's the truth, God, God is the truth. The word is God. Right. Right. There's that, but that truth is obscured. There's a veil of the veil of ignorance or the veil of like the whole kind of notion that Satan is causing this refraction of, of the truth and and twisting it and and so forth to, to rob us of our, of our salvation or, or what have you. um, And that's the role of sin in the world. And right. And yeah, go on. And sort of how that is, is like you're, we're sort of spooked by the world, the desire, the pure, like the flesh, mm-hmm. rather than the unity, the the one, the the word, the God, you know, the way, the truth, the light, so to speak. So, I had a thought, you know, for a couple of years that like that kind of set me up to, I think, embrace or like switch that. <laughs> it's almost like picking up a di- like a di- a different machine. Mm-hmm. But it's like still rooted in some sense in that initial philosophical tradition of of theology. Gotcha. So you're you're kind of you're 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 saying you had a kind of similar uh, that that's something similar that that drew you because like it's towards towards philosophy. Like at first, it felt like a revolution. It felt like it's an antagonistic thing. But like mm-hmm. if I really sort of analyze it, there's a certain like there's a certain fertility. It sort of plowed it uh, tilled my my mental space right. into a, into a position where I could sort of like map onto a different angle or, but it's still sort of fundamentally, I don't know, there's like a fundamental relationship. Yeah. A metaphorical I think that, relationship. Right. I, I think that, that, that this comes to the, and we'll, we kind of save the best for last where non philosophy is not meant to the non and non philosophy was just said with non Euclidean is meant as a positive attribute. So it's not the negation of philosophy. It's not anti-philosophy. It's not counter-philosophy. Yeah. It is just not not a destruction of philosophy itself or or the singularities in which it, it incarnates in in different traditions and and thinkers. It is merely the suspension, destruction, and removal of its sufficiency. And we'll get we'll be able to talk about next time what that entails and and more into like the generic science he proposes. But I think that. The thing that's fully positive about Larwell's move is that I think Larwell would agree with the fact that you and I were both drawn to philosophy for certain reasons. And Larwell himself is a trained philosopher and something drew him to philosophy that, that, that it, it does, it is this movement and intensification of, of our mental faculties, of our spiritual faculties, of our, of our involvement and engagement with, with life and with others uh, so it has these ethical ramifications, yeah. and 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 so I do think that philosophy is this intensification of life. Laurel wants us to 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 keep pushing that in a way that he feels philosophy turns insular, that that it yes. that it kind of curves in right. and closes upon itself, not just in its most classic, classic forms, although that's the most massive. Right. That's the most easy to point easy, out, but, yeah. but there's something insidious too that there's a kind of self justification to it as right. well. Yeah. So 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 it's so I think for Laura Well, and this is why non standard philosophy is a much better term, 
because non-philosophy, it, it almost elicits too much resistance and implies, right. and implies on the face of things too, uh, that, that it's negative or that antagonism. It's, uh, yes. Right. And, um, and so, and so I, I find non-standard philosophy to be a, or, or even just non-Euclidean philosophy is, you know, uh, although you don't need the proper name, right? And I think that's why he calls it non-standard. It's the standard form of philosophy that, that doesn't take philosophy's imminent kind of force of thought yeah. to its conclusions and, and, and restricts itself based on, um, you know, he calls it here the unity of contraries, which we didn't go into, but we can always come back to some of this stuff. Yeah, because um, I think we need to talk about what LaRuel means by s what science is for LaRuel and uh, that, that integration. But yeah, yeah. also I felt that uh, unity, what does it say? <laughs> unity of contraries. Unity of contraries, right. Okay. Right. So, so which is a great, like, well, mo I think that's a great way to kind of look at philosophy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a great. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, for example, the, 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 you can look at the, the way that Hegel gets simplified and distorted into thesis antithesis yeah, exactly. and synthesis, uh, which is not, not, not how he thinks about the historical progression of, of spirit. It's not a bad thing that that's there. It's not the truth of Hegel, but it's like, it's like telling the truth of Hegel, but, but slant, right? Because again, for, for Laura, well, that type of bastardization of Hegel would have just as much, just as much equivalence in terms of its reality, in terms of the real, as Hegel's own historical phenomenologization of, of, of spirit, you know, if from the standpoint of, of, of non-philosophy. But yeah, we'll, what we'll need to do, Coop, is maybe, uh, and, and you and I can both do this, we'll, we'll take some of the main things that we didn't hit upon, because we, really, this is almost not even like, covering the intro and the preface, we were kind of setting a, a, a framework, setting, setting the stage for um, sort of easing into talking about, about yeah. non-fi. And, and I think that we can, we should return if you want, we can, we can try to return next week or earlier, just whenever, when it, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out and yeah. we'll try to hit upon some of maybe, maybe a few more of these terms. We'll talk a little bit more about unity of contraries, for example, and some of these other, some of these other things and, um, and make sure that we don't move too quickly past right. the intro. Yeah. We, I, don't, I don't think we, we, we exhausted it yet. Definitely not. Certainly. All right. But I think well, a good, a good yeah, starting go point. Ahead. I'm happy. I'm happy with the work that we got done. It was like, it was very good. No, I thought it was great. And you know, if you guys are listening, of course, you can always follow me at T Adkin six one three. You know, and be sure to send me or or Coop your your questions. You can send it to one of Coop's two accounts, and or you can send <laughs> to me, and we'll try to we'll try to incorporate them. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do a formal call for questions too next yeah. time or before we we set up. But yeah, I sorry to cut us off so abruptly, but. I mean, I we've been talking for like two hours, so it's not, yeah, it's not exactly abruptly. <laughs> I'm going to let you go, um, and I'm going to go get and right and then we'll 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 chat we'll chat yeah, later absolutely. in the day. Um, Sounds good, man. Take care, take care of your fam. It's hey, man. Thanks, one. thanks again. Always thank for, you for oh, having me course. on. And I'm um, blessed. To, I'm blessed to have. I'm just. I'm receiving all the blessings. So. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I'm. I'm just glad to. I'm glad you, you know, you, you put the stuff together, you, oh, yeah. you do, you do the editing work and, and you do, you, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you and I, you know, birthday, birthday bros. Um, <laughs> and Hey, just let's talk again about, uh, whether or not, you know, uh, yeah. the, we'll talk again about, about maybe meeting up in real life, which would be 
Excellent. Hell yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, but I'll, I'll, I'll DM you soon. Sounds good. Take care. See you, buddy. And that, that's going to wrap up our discussion for the day. But um, as far as listeners, if you want to find me on Instagram, I'm at UnconsciousHH. On Twitter, at UnconsciousHH. I'm also, I do have a Patreon if you're enjoying the content. Um, you know, consider throwing me a buck or so at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. But this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and my guest Taylor Atkins uh, signing off for the week. Cheers. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.